Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Let's talk about your period. Let's talk about your menstrual cycle. Let's talk about how it relates to fertility. And let's talk about all the things that people don't tell you about women's bodies and about your period. Many women are not taught about their menstrual cycles or about their fertility, so we are left feeling confused or scared or overwhelmed or unclear about it all. Many of us, myself included, have been scared of getting pregnant, so we take tons of measures in our teenage years and our 20s to prevent against pregnancy, but then we wake up a decade later and realize that now our fertility story is something completely different. Today, we get to have Lisa Hendrickson-Jack on the show. She is the author of The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. She is a certified fertility awareness educator and a holistic reproductive health practitioner. She teaches women how to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, for conception, and for monitoring your overall health. And her book, The Fifth Vital Sign, is all about why your cycle is one of your vital signs in your body if you are a woman. She debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children because we need to recognize that the menstrual cycle is part of our entire biology and physiology. She presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. So today we get to have Lisa on the show and she talks about her journey into this field. She tells us about her podcast, which is called a Fertility Friday. And we talk about her journey into parenting. I also get a chance to ask her a few questions about her book and we dive into the menstrual cycle and the fertility cycle and what we wish people had told us when we were younger. So I cannot wait to bring you today's guest and welcome her to the show. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. If you live in the United States, you are entitled to a free breast pump with your insurance, but navigating insurance and paperwork can be such a pain. Aeroflow Breast Pumps, the sponsor of this episode, is a company dedicated to making the hassle of getting a breast pump a lot easier easier for new mamas. If you are a new mom or even a second time or third time mom, Aeroflow has a ton of resources for you about breastfeeding and pumping and navigating the transition back to work all on their website. If you head over to aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash startup, they can quickly and easily help you qualify for a free breast pump through your insurance. I just used them for my second baby and it honestly took just a couple of minutes to go online and, and enter my information. They ran all the checks. They set up the dates. They sent me an email. They said, you're eligible. And then when my eligibility window came up, they went ahead and they shipped it right out to me. So it was super easy. It was such a relief. There is enough to do when you are prepping for a new baby and having somebody like Aeroflow Breast Pumps on your team is really helpful. The link's in the show notes and it's also on our website too. I am so excited to welcome Lisa to the show. Lisa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. Me too. So the first question I love asking people is hopefully relatively easy to answer. 
what time did you wake up this morning? And what was the first thing that you did? I woke up at 6.10. And it's not very exciting. What was the first thing that I did? When I wake up, because I, I'm not a it depends on how much sleep I get, how much of a morning person that I am. But I often kind of close my eyes and kind of lay in bed and try to do a little bit of meditation so that I can kind of prepare myself for when my kids come into my room and jump on me. So that's the first thing I did this morning. Close your eyes, breathe. Okay, yes. here we go. Yes. <laughs> what time do your kids come in and wake you up? Uh, depends, but typically 6.30ish. So tell us how old your kids are and what your morning looks like. Well, uh, six and three, and it depends on the day. So my husband and I take turns. He actually is the one that typically does uh, breakfast duty, but there's certain days when he gets, you know, he has to leave earlier for work and those types of things. So, you know, this morning was my day. And so typically, you know, it's getting breakfast ready on work days. I'm getting my eldest son to the bus stop. He's in grade one and the bus picks him up at 7.27 a.m. every day. So again, I'm getting both of them out to school and daycare and things like that. So, you know, it's a crazy morning bustle thing, I think, that many parents are in the midst of. (laughs) Do you have pants on? Do you have pants on? (laughs) Right? Did you pee? (laughs) Okay, did you brush your teeth? Hold on. Did we we do your hair? Oh my goodness. Is your shirt on backwards? Okay. (laughs) This morning, my toddler was yelling at me, no, mommy, you can't walk on the carpet with your boots on. And I was like, you are correct. But oh, God, right? Yes. So what time are they gone all day at school? And tell us when you start working and what working looks like for you. Well, so they are out for most of the day. My eldest son, he is dropped off. The bus drops him off at 2.57 every day. So, you know, I basically scheduled my workday around the drop off and the pickup. And so, for instance, we're doing an interview now and I've scheduled it so that it will be done with a little buffer period so that I will be at the bus stop at 2.57. <laughs> it's always, I was like, always I have a hard stop at that time. And so I start work. It really depends on the morning. So with my three-year-old, he is an expert at um, stalling and delaying <laughs> and getting extra time from mummy. So typically, I, I'm able to drop him off shortly after my eldest son. And so, you know, typically both kids are in their respective places before eight. And that means I can come home and if I need to do a little something around the house, or if I can just jump into some meditation for a couple of minutes in my ideal day that's what i do you know i drop them off i come home i put on meditation for 20 minutes and just center myself and calm and you know do a little bit of journaling what do i need to do today you know write out my list and kind of you know that doesn't happen every single day but it happens a lot of the days and that's it helps to get me in the zone for working so then i'm typically working from say 9 until 2:30 and then i kind of you know start start the day again get pick up the kids and get into the my friend calls it it's like one word dinner bath bed <laughs> <laughs> dinner bath bed yeah that's funny it's just like a, it's just one word just together <laughs> dinner bath bed it's all of them and it's divide and conquer if there's two people and then it's like how do you if one of us is gone how do you do that yes 
It's well, so much. other activities because now we've got we've got piano, we've got swimming and soccer, and so there's all the all the things as well to try to fit into the the afternoons and the evenings. So before we get into the business side of things, because I, I'm already feeling myself wanting to ask you about that, I want to back up and ask you about your parenting journey. And I know, or I have a hunch that the two might be related, the business and the parenting journey. Can you tell us, have you always known that you've wanted to become a parent and what that looked like for you? I did always know I wanted to become a parent. And it's an interesting question because, of course, then it ties into what I do, which is teaching fertility awareness, you know, teaching women to understand their menstrual cycles. So for me, I always knew I wanted to have children at some point. I knew when I was like 19 that it wasn't then. And so for me, in terms of like my health and overall, I know that, you know, I some of my family members, so my mom and some of my aunties had challenges getting pregnant. So from a young age, you know, I, I didn't take birth control for, I didn't take hormonal birth control, I should say, to um, prevent pregnancy. All these years I've been charting my cycles and avoiding pregnancy naturally in all of those ways. That's more on the like health side because I was worried that if I did something like that, I just was, I had this fear about hormonal birth control because it, I'll just go on a little tangent and I'll get back to the point. Sorry. Yes, it just, of course. Uh, <laughs> but for me, like I, I went on the pill when I was a really, when I was probably about 15 or 16 because I had really heavy painful periods. And then every, because I wasn't using it for birth control, I would go off of it sometimes. And whenever I would go off of it, my cycles would come back just as bad or worse. So I had the sense of like, okay, it's not fixing anything. I don't know what it's doing. I know I want to have kids someday, so I just don't want to mess with anything because I know my mom had to have a hysterectomy at some point because she had fibroids. And that's something that has happened to a lot of my aunts and cousins just in my family. So I kind of had the sense of like, okay, I don't want to mess with anything. I just want to make sure that (laughs) everything's operating just fine so that when I do decide I want kids, that'll happen. So that's a big part of my just parenting journey because that was always something that was on my radar. And so by you know, charting my cycles and avoiding pregnancy without the hormones, that was a way for me to at least feel comfortable that when I was ready to start a family, I could just start having sex on the opposite days. <laughs> and that I didn't have to worry about any hormone-induced issues. And then in terms of my my journey to parenthood, I mean, I met my partner. I was around, when did, I don't even know how, I think I was 29 or something when I got married, 28. And then I had my first son when I was 30, the day after my 30th birthday. <laughs> so I was in labor on my birthday. But I mean, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but essentially I always did know I wanted to be a parent and I was really just waiting for the stars to align. And I was hoping that I would be able to start my parenting journey not too late. So it kind of worked out. So this is really interesting because I know so many people who don't think about their fertility until much later, or they don't think about the consequences of hormonal birth control, which you talk about in your book. Why do you think it was that you were so aware of it from such a young age? Was it, would you tell me? Because I know you mentioned your mom, but also what else? So seeing my mom, so what in her case, and I, you know, talked with her and I asked her if it was okay for me to share that in her book and she, or in my book and she was okay. But essentially, you know, when I was, I was pretty young, I think I was, it's hard for me to remember exactly my age, but I was probably 10-ish, you know, in, in that, like, I, it was before I was a teenager. She really struggled with painful periods. So my mom and dad, they had me a bit later and then they did want to 
I'm, I'm an only child. And so my, they did want another child and she did get pregnant at one point and that miscarried and then wasn't, she never got pregnant again. And then at some point her periods would, they, they just got to be so heavy. So whenever she had her period, I would know because she would be like laying on the couch on top of uh, plastic because her periods were so heavy that literally like it was just it was like flooding all the time and that was because of her fibroids and so you know a lot of women who have fibroids that that are bigger and at an advanced stage you can see they look three months pregnant and so and yeah she did because they were really big and so eventually this went on for years and eventually she because she didn't want who wants to get surgery so eventually she decided to have her uterus taken out right that's what they did they took it out that's that's how they treat it and my auntie came to visit you know, to help her recover from the surgery. And my auntie showed her scar from her surgery from when she had her hysterectomy. So I'm like a really young girl and I'm privy to these adult conversations with these two important women in my life. And I remember my aunt talking about her experience and she was talking about how by the time when she decided to get the surgery, she was putting on a super pad and she would insert a super tampon. And by the time she got to work one day, you know, her colleague is like, hey, you've got something on your pants. So this was, it's, I don't know, a lot of people say it's genetic, but obviously that made a really strong impression on me. I had other aunties who had similar issues, other cousins who had similar issues with fibroids. And one of my other aunties had a really difficult time getting pregnant. And when she got pregnant, she was on bed rest the whole time. So for me, like seeing all this stuff at a young age and knowing that I, it's it's within my family and I obviously, could, it could happen to me as well. It really it just put in my mind this idea that you know, this isn't right. This isn't how it should be. And from the very first period I had, it was really painful and heavy, like from the first one. (laughs) And so I was kind of like, okay, well, here it is. I obviously am at a higher risk for this. I didn't want to have a hysterectomy. Like I might have been 10 and I might not have even known what that meant, but I knew I didn't want to have one. So for me, part of my journey was literally just to figure this out and to try to, because I had this, like I had the sense of like, this isn't normal. There must be something that I can do to just improve my health overall so that I don't end up, you know, 42 having to have my uterus taken out because my periods are so heavy that I can't even stand up without bleeding all over the place. So how does this intersect with your with your business journey? And when did you become, because for people listening, you're a fertility awareness educator, you're a holistic reproductive health practitioner, you teach people about their menstrual cycles, you've written this amazing book, which we'll get into. When did you start intersecting your own curiosity with your business? Well, and that happened quite young for me. And so essentially, when I decided, like when I was at the point where I started to be sexually active and I needed birth control, I had all of this going on in my mind. And because I always knew I wanted to have kids someday, and I'm, because I was already scared, I was scared because the doctors, the only thing that they would tell me was the pill. I had different cycle issues. As I mentioned, I had the heavy, painful periods. And, you know, I went to the doctor as a teenager and that was what they provided me. I mean, that's what I wanted as well because I didn't know of any other way to, to deal with it. But because the, the periods would always come back the same or worse, it was like they came back with a vengeance. Every time I went off the pill, it was like they were heavier and more painful. <laughs> and so I was kind of, I just had this keen awareness of like, this isn't fixing anything. It's not, it's masking whatever's happening, but it's not fixing it. And so I was looking for birth control for that purpose of preventing pregnancy. I was terrified of getting pregnant because of course I was taught like most women that you can get pregnant every day of your cycle, which is not true. And so I remember having this thought of like, okay, so now I need birth control. 
I'm really scared that I'm going to get pregnant and I'm 19 and I don't want to get pregnant. So I think I'm probably going to use the, like if I use the pill, I'm going to use condoms all the time. I was that scared. So then I was like, but condoms are effective. So let me just skip the condoms. And it was around that time that I discovered fertility awareness. So like the tender age of like 18 or 19, I'm pretty sure it was my first year of university. I discovered fertility awareness through it was on my university campus. I was going to all these like feminist talks and, you know, I went to this one talk and this woman mentioned that you can't get pregnant every day of your menstrual cycle. She was reading her book. And so that's how I first discovered the method. And at the time on my university campus, there was a group of women that was meeting every month teaching fertility awareness. So this group of women, there were educators, women who were training and the founder of Justice, the one secular, one of the only or one of the few secular organizations that teach fertility awareness like in North America. So I was, right, like when I tell the story, it's almost like, well, it was clearly meant to be. But so basically at a very young age then, again, I was surrounded by these women who were a lot wiser than me, who had a lot more experience, who many of whom were trained fertility awareness educators. And so I was able to learn how to chart in the midst of all this knowledge about how the menstrual cycle is important for overall health. And in my case, I, you know, I started charting and I was really excited about it. I was able to avoid pregnancy without hormones and it was really working for me. And in the midst of my kind of like post high school feminist phase, discovering the menstrual cycle, all of that, I remember I was charting and my cycles weren't normal, but I didn't know that. So I'm charting, my cycles are like 45 days on average. And I'm thinking to myself, like, well, who says your cycle has to be 28 days? That's medical establishment, blah, blah, blah. And so my charting instructor looked at my charts and she's like, yeah, Lisa, that's not normal. She's like, your temperatures are too low and your cycles are too long. And you're telling me you've got these really heavy, painful periods. Like, I think that you need to go to the doctor, get your thyroid tested and just make sure everything's okay. So quite literally, my charting instructor looked at my chart and that was an indication that I had a thyroid issue, which I did. <laughs> and as I addressed it over the years, my cycles improved along with, you know, a variety of other things I did over the years. So my personal journey intersects with my kind of business and career journey in that I was looking personally for a way to improve my cycles naturally. I had had an experience with a medical model, which I went to, I went to a specialist. I made my doctor give me a referral to a specialist. I went to the specialist. I'm telling him, you know, my cycles are 45 days long. What can I do? Go on the pill. I, I think I might have fibroids. I've got a family history. I made my doctor refer me to a specialist, made the specialist give me an ultrasound, discovered fibroids in my early twenties, asking the doctor, what can I do? Go on the pill, literally everything, go on the pill, go on the pill. So it was through charting that I really discovered a more natural way to minimize my chances of this. So although I do have fibroids, because I have over the years lived in a certain way, reduced my chemical exposure, I eat in a way that supports my detoxification systems. There's all of these other things that I do as a result of kind of the career path that I've taken. My fibroids have never really grown. They didn't interfere with my pregnancies. I'm almost 40 years old and you know, my periods are manageable. And so I was able to create a different story for myself. I'm not going to be 42 or 45 having a hysterectomy because my bleeding is so heavy that I can't stand up, right? So it's interesting how those journeys connect, but that's basically, and I've never been asked questions like this, Sarah, so this is a lot of fun, but (laughs) (laughs) but you can kind of, I, I feel like you can really see how these things have really intersected for me in both my professional and personal life. Oh, always, right? Like the business journey isn't separate from the parenting journey. And it's so interesting to see how they overlap in different ways for all of our guests. I'm curious, do you, we have a medical establishment that pushes the pill. 
right? <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> you don't say. But do you have a sense of where that comes from? Like, why do you think doctors are saying so often, like, oh, try the pill, do the pill, do the pill? Where do you think that comes from? Well, I mean, I have a lot of opinions about that. But, uh, you know, that, that that was obviously a question of mine. And so in my, when I started my podcast, it was like every time I had an opportunity to interview a doctor, like every time I can get my hands on a doctor, I would basically ask them. It's like my favorite thing. So, you know, what did they teach you in med school? Can you help give me some insight in as to why, you know, all issues related to the menstrual cycle are addressed in this way. And so over the years and the different interviews that I've done with doctors, people who've gone through med school, what I've learned is that, you know, if you think about it even deeper than that, it's that the medical system is steeped in patriarchy. <laughs> and, you know, if you, it might sound harsh, but it's not. I mean, with scientific research, primarily the research historically was done on men or male animals because it was thought that women add just, it's just too complex. We've got all these hormones, we've got these different organs, right? And quite literally, women were not as extensively studied as men. So if you think of the field of medicine, it's extensively based on the study of the male body. And it's almost as though they think that women are men, except, you know, take out the testicles, put in the ovaries or something. However, women are different. Our physiology is different. We're all human beings, but women's bodies are very different. And the menstrual cycle and our reproductive system is a central part of our body, and it affects how all of these different aspects of our body function. There's almost this idea, you know, in, in medicine that the menstrual cycle is somehow separate from the rest of our bodies. And you can do what you want with it. You can suppress it with the pill and it's not going to have an impact on anything else until you look at the research and you discover that the menstrual cycle is related to our heart health and our bone health. And when the menstrual cycle is off, it gives us specific information about uh, our health. So in terms of like the question of why is it that, you know, the pill is pushed for everything menstrual, it's because that's how doctors are taught in medical school. When I interviewed doctors, it was quite literally like what I, what the doctors are telling me is that, you know, in medical school, we learn about the menstrual cycle. We learn that the menstrual cycle is 28 days long, always, that ovulation happens on day 14. And we basically learn all of the, the mechanics behind it. And then we learn about all the things that can go wrong. And essentially, the answer for everything that can go wrong is the birth control pill. I have a, a sidebar story that I think you'll love. And I'm going to, I'll post the article in the comments and I'll send it to you later. But there was an article I just read the other day that talked about how for a long time, there was this archaeological stick. I don't know what the right word is. Let's call it a stick. But there were hatch marks on it. And they were counting days. And they said, oh, you know, look at mankind. Man counted 28 days. They, this is the evidence of like time. And somebody in the classroom was like, you know who's counting 28 days? <laughs> it's not <Wow>. the men. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. It like, didn't occur to anybody, right? Yeah, We're right? here too, dudes. We were also part of history because if, if it wasn't for women, you wouldn't actually have been born. Can we just can we just Can we just on? start there? Okay. So two things that are coming up for me in um, response to the, the stories you're sharing are first, one of the things that, it's, that you are sharing is how important it is for you to be an advocate of your own fertility when you're going to the doctor and to be able to say, actually, no, I want to press back and say that like I've, I'm seeing this, I'm observing this, I really do want to go see a specialist. And I feel like that can be a very hard place for people who don't have a lot of information or trust the medical system or say, well, I'm just supposed to follow the doctor's advice. What would you say if a friend were listening in on this conversation, with which they are, um, what would you say to them? What should they know about taking responsibility for 
for their menstrual and health and holistic wellness? Well, one of the things that I always say is that nobody cares more about your health, about your fertility, about your menstrual cycle. Nobody cares more about that than you. And I think that's the first thing to kind of wrap your head around. You know, these medical professionals are highly trained and incredibly skilled in the fields that they focus on, but they see a lot of patients and ultimately it's not easy to get the care we want. We just talked about, you know, basically like medical, like patriarchy in medicine. And over the years, as you can imagine, I've worked with a lot of women and the stories are very consistent. The majority of women that you speak to who've ever had any type of menstrual cycle issue, if you speak to a woman who's had a menstrual cycle issue and she's gone to her doctor about it, the majority of the time, what you're going to hear is that her concerns weren't really fully heard. She didn't feel addressed. Like, she didn't feel heard. She didn't feel like her practitioner was addressing it. She didn't feel like she was being provided with a reason why, because that's what we always want to know. We want to know, well, why? I haven't had a period in three months. Why? Often, the you know, basically all of the questions and all of the concerns are being completely ignored or minimized. And really, it's just the pill, the pill, the pill, the pill for everything. So the hard thing is that if I was talking to a friend or a client, the way that I talk about advocacy I mean, I think, first of all, you have to know who your audience is. The example I use in the book is like, you're not going to go to the library and try to ask for an oil change. Like, you're not going to go to McDonald's and ask for like a, a steak or whatever. So the first thing is that we have to understand that there are different practitioners who have different roles, who are trained in different ways. We have to first understand what Western medicine is. And, you know, Western medicine is very much like a pill for every ill. You know, we have illness A we give pill B. And I think we all know that. When you go to a doctor, the doctor isn't trained to tell you to make dietary changes and lifestyle changes and to address the you know fundamental you know underlying issue that is causing your menstrual cycle distress, because that's not what doctors are taught in medical school. And so one of the challenges that women face is that as we learn more about our bodies and as we learn about how our, let's say, for example, for how our cycles are affected by our overall health and we're learning. So in the, the book is called The Fifth Vital Sign because I'm arguing that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign and your menstrual cycle, if it's off, it's an indication of an underlying issue. Well, Western medicine doesn't really operate that way. So if you're jazzed about the menstrual cycle and you're starting to realize, oh my goodness, you know, this, the fact that I haven't ovulated in three months could indicate something about my health and I need some help to figure that out. When you go into the doctor's office, the first thing to recognize is that doctors are trained in a different way and they're, they're trained to basically provide you with medication for health issues. So that's the first thing, because then what happens is a lot of women, you know, they start charting their cycles, they start learning more about their bodies and they go to their doctors and they're so excited, you know, I'm charting and the doctor's like, I don't want to see that, you know. Because they never, in their, like, it's not part of their training. So if you need support with identifying the underlying issues of your health condition, if you are looking for someone who is coming from a functional medicine perspective, who's going to look at your whole body, who's going to support you with making dietary changes, you know, addressing nutrient deficiencies, you have to go to a functional practitioner. You have to look for either a doctor who has been trained to operate in a functional perspective, a naturopath, or some sort of health practitioner who has been trained to look at the body that way. The second thing will be a much shorter point is take to- your time. <laughs> Everyone loves this. But the second thing is to recognize it's not easy. Advocating for yourself is really hard. 
You know, it's it's not fun. It's it's often really lonely. And often you kind of you might even feel like you're crazy. Imagine going to a doctor and you disagree with what the doctor recommends. You don't want to do it, you know? You have an issue with your menstrual cycle and the doctor's telling you to go on the pill, but you don't want to go on the pill. And you say something like, well, I don't want to go on the pill. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid of what it's going to do to my body. And the doctor says, the pill is totally fine. It's harmless. You know, it's totally safe. I have all of my patients are on the pill. You know, what's wrong with you? That happens. And so when you're advocating for yourself, in many ways, you have to accept that it's it's hard. And I think the hardest part is to have enough confidence in ourselves, to trust enough in our intuition, to trust those inner whispers that tell us, no, this isn't right. This doesn't feel right. I don't like this. To trust that enough that we can withstand, you know, whatever ridicule or whatever pushback that we get. We have to kind of stand firm in our convictions and press on until we find a practitioner who's willing to respect us and listen to us and support us in the ways that we want to be supported. Oh my gosh. I just got shivers with so much of what you just said because even the like context of the relationship, are you asking your doctors questions and are they respecting you and the fact that you have questions? Are they able to answer them kindly or thoughtfully? Like that's important and it matters. Oh. And yeah, you're so right. Advocating for yourself can be really hard, especially when the doctor is the expert and they are wearing a lab coat and this is the way that everyone else is doing it. It can be really hard. Mm -hmm. It's very paternalistic, right? It's the father figure. And because I'm kind of like a, you know, shit disturber. And <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and because I've been doing this for so long and, you know, one of the benefits of what I do, I mean, I'm teaching women to chart their cycles. You know, women come to charting because they want birth control. Some women come to charting because they're trying to get pregnant. But what happens is all of a sudden they realize how deep this gets. You know, when you are having an issue at work and it's really stressful and you realize that your ovulation is delayed a couple days, when you realize that, you know, you have uh, postpartum thyroiditis, but you can see these issues in your charts. And then as you address that concern and it gets better, your charts get better. When you start to actually see that and live it, you really start to recognize how powerful this is and how as women, we have this additional tool, this additional way to keep track of our health. You know, you can't say a whole lot to a woman who's been charting her cycles for two, five, ten years because you can't, like, honestly, the doctor can't tell me anything. The doctor can't tell me that my thyroid doesn't affect my chart. <laughs> the doctor can't tell me that charting is silly or that it's not an effective method of birth control when I've been doing it for almost 20 years. So a part of it is really, it's almost like growing up, coming into that womanhood, coming into that ability to trust and believe in ourselves and to have an understanding. The doctor is an expert in the field that they studied, but you, the doctor is never going to live in your body. You are the expert of your body. You might not know how to explain it. You might not know the medical terminology for what's happening. But as women, there's just this history in medicine of, of our issues and concerns being dismissed. So self-advocacy self -advocacy is really, really hard. That's, I mean, I have a whole chapter about like getting the support you need because honestly, it's a, it's incredible how much time I spend with my client. Like you, you wouldn't think you're coming to me to chart your cycles. We're trying to figure out your menstrual cycle. We're trying to figure out your mucus, whatever. But we're spending so much time talking about how to advocate for yourself, how to trust in your own body, how to trust in your own symptoms, how to persevere even when your practitioner tells you, no, that's crazy. That's impossible. And I'll give you an example because recently I've been really jazzed and just I try to channel my frustration <laughs> or it'll like take over but I recently released an episode on my podcast about the copper IUD 
<laughs> and oh, so every now, yeah, every now, so for a while I've been doing this series and it's, I called the pill reality series. And so I basically connect with women who've used birth control and they share their stories. And so, you know, a lot of the time the stories are a little bit, you know, not so good. They're sharing their experience for a reason. But one of the things that has surprised me, cause I personally never used the IUD. I was always just afraid of having things inserted. I'm just, and also I heard that it can make your periods heavier. And I was like, well, I've already got, <laughs> don't need <It's>, that. <laughs> I am not a candidate for this. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm interviewing these women and I don't know if you've, cause I'm, I hear about all the menstrual stuff, right. But lately there's been these articles coming out with women who've had, you know, they've, they're getting the IUD, the insertion is really painful and they're sharing their stories of doctors basically saying, no, there's no nerve endings in there. It can't be painful. So I do this series. I reach out to some women in my Facebook group who are sharing information about their copper IUD and they're, you know, we're having our interviews. They're telling me about their insertion and, it takes up a big enough part of the interview because the insertion is so painful. They're telling me that, you know, they're creeping up the table. This one woman basically said she brought in a teddy bear when she was, she was switching out the hormonal IUD for the copper one. She literally brought in a teddy bear because she was like, I knew that it, I wouldn't, the doctor wouldn't have an assistant and I wouldn't be able to hold the doctor's hand. So I knew I need like, like, are you kidding me? And so if anyone needs an, an example of how the medical establishment ignores women's pain and doesn't always take women seriously for our symptoms and our experiences, ask any woman who's had a copper IUD inserted. I mean, literally doctors are telling women there's no nerve endings in the cervix. It couldn't possibly hurt. Oh, it'll be easy. We'll just go in and insert it back and forth. And these women are describing it like it's not, it doesn't necessarily last all day, but it's like this intense, horrifying pain for a period of time that we are not being provided, you know, anesthesia and the doctors are fully minimizing it and just, it's fine. It's just going to take a minute or whatever. So if anyone needed an example of. Oh, I can't, <laughs> the, there's so many parts of that that are so wrong. Right. That like we could take a long time unpacking and I can feel my pelvic floor actually tensing up right now. Cause I'm getting angry <laughs> on behalf of, the, of people. Wow. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> advocacy is hard because literally you have women squirming on a table and telling the doctor that it's hurting and the doctor's saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's just going to be a minute, whatever. So it's bigger than the both of us, Sarah. This is like a bigger issue. This is an issue of how, uh, I don't know if it's how women are viewed, patients are viewed. Like, I don't know what it is, but it's a much bigger issue than, and that's why it's hard as a woman, just as a woman who didn't go to med school to go into a doctor's office and advocate for herself. It's just hard. It's very hard. The part of it is gaslighting because when you tell somebody that they shouldn't be experiencing something or that they shouldn't be having the the feelings that they're having or that it's their fault or minimizing it, that's that's part of the problem. Part of it is that we don't listen to women's voices. Part of it is <laughs> that we don't study women's bodies. Like <laughs> part of it is that the medical system is set up like a patriarchy and it's patronizing. Those words are related for a reason. Yeah, there's so much here we can unpack. I do. So I'm going to steer us slightly to another place and maybe we can have like a, a rant in another episode, or we'll just get to it later. But I want to talk about the title of your book, because I think it's so important. So for everyone listening, Lisa is the author of a book called The Fifth Vital Sign. And this is such a cool title. I want to ask you first, what is a vital sign for people listening? Well, that's a great question. I mean, a vital sign is something, it's basically a bodily sign that gives us information about our health in real time. And so the most common vital signs that we are used to that your doctor would measure when you go in for an appointment would be, you know, your heart rate, your respiratory rate, how many breaths that you're taking every minute, your blood pressure, and your body temperature. 
And if you think about any of those vital signs, there is a well-established set of normal parameters for each of those. And if you were to go to your doctor's office and your blood pressure was really high or really low, not only would it give the doctor some information right now about what's happening in your body, if it's out of the range, it's also going to give your doctor a roadmap of, okay, so when the blood pressure is low, these are some of the reasons that could cause that. So the fifth vital sign, what I'm saying is that the menstrual cycle, you know, with regular ovulation is the fifth vital sign for women of reproductive age. And in the same way that any of the other vital signs would provide a real-time measure of, you know, different things that are happening health-wise, the menstrual cycle does the same thing. So with the menstrual cycle as women, because we're not really taught, taught about it, and for all the reasons that we just discussed we often think of our menstrual cycle as just our period. So we just think, oh, it's just my period. But when I'm talking about the menstrual cycle and when I'm teaching women about the menstrual cycle, we're talking about the whole thing. So we're talking about from day one of your period until the day before your next one starts, everything that happens in between. And we can divide the menstrual cycle into a number of different phases. So yes, the period is absolutely part of that. We would look at, you know, how long is it? How much How much are you bleeding? Is it following a normal flow pattern? Is the color red, <laughs> right? Does it look healthy and normal, et cetera? But we would also look at, you know, as you approach ovulation, you know, are you producing cervical mucus as you approach ovulation? So we're not taught a lot about our mucus, but most women have experienced it. Mucus, sometimes it looks like creamy white hand lotion. Sometimes it looks like raw, clear, stretchy egg whites kind of thing. And uh, for some women, they'll just notice when they're going to the bathroom and they're wiping themselves, it might feel as though they have to wipe several times <laughs> to get at it because it feels like there's something there. Or they might find that it just feels really, really lubricative, really slippery. And so as we approach ovulation, we would expect to produce cervical mucus for, you know, two to seven days. And we would expect to ovulate in a healthy cycle. And then after ovulation, we would expect to have about 12 to 14 days in the post-ovulatory phase before we have our next period. When you break the menstrual cycle down into those different aspects of it, then we can really kind of start getting down to business because if your period is off, that might give us some information. If you're having no cervical mucus or too many days of cervical mucus, that can give us some information. If you're not ovulating, that gives us a lot of information. If ovulation is happening really late in the cycle, that gives us some information or earlier in the cycle. And also the second half of your cycle, your luteal phase, how many days between your period, your ovulation and your next period. If it's too short, that gives us information. If you're having spotting or irregular bleeding throughout your cycle, that gives us information. And it's really interesting because, I mean, I've had the opportunity over the years to see this in action. And so I've worked with, you know, all kinds of women who have an anything from like no health issues and healthy cycles to actual, you know, health issues, whether it's a thyroid issue, polycystic ovary syndrome, you know, gut problems, underlying infections, you, you know what I mean? Like hypothalamic amenorrhea, whatever. And when you start to see that the menstrual cycle mirrors what's happening in a woman's health, whether we're talking about chronic health issues or whether we're talking about stress, like the acute stress of going on a vacation, even if it's like a, a happy thing. But either way, the menstrual cycle is always responding. So when I say the, the fifth vital sign, that's essentially what it is. There's a number of organizations who have officially recognized the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, or at least suggested that medical professionals should be looking at it that way. Because for women, that's often the very first thing to shift when there's a, a menstrual cycle issue. Uh, so it would be really nice at some point for the broader kind of medical establishment to start treating the menstrual cycle as a vital sign and really looking at it as a sign of health for reproductive age women. So for people who have not even considered 
their fertility or they are listening to this podcast because they know in their future they want kids, but they haven't really done anything yet to prepare for it, which I know there are people out there listening like that because they email me and they say, you know, I'm deciding whether or not to have kids and I'm in my mid-20s and I haven't decided yet. And so I'm listening to this to gain some information. Or another person emailed me and said, I'm 31. I probably won't have kids for another six or seven years, but I'm starting to think about what I should do or if there's anything I should do just to make sure that I can have kids. What kind of information do you wish were more common or that they had? And I know this is a huge question, and part of the answer is going to be go read your book. But in the time that we have here, and I will, I'm will, i going to tell everyone, go read her book because it's great. Um, but it, what are some of the first pieces of information you would share about getting in touch with your body and your charting your cycle and like preparing for fertility? Well, I think we could start with a couple of the myths, the the common myths about the menstrual cycle. And uh, I mean, there's several, but the first thing to know is that as women, most of us are taught a lot of misinformation about our cycles. And so we're taught that we can get pregnant every single day of our cycles. And we're taught that indirectly, it's like we're taught that having a healthy menstrual cycle is irrelevant unless you're trying to have a baby. So we are kind of taught that, for example, for the woman who isn't sure if she's trying to, if she even wants to have kids, so she's on the fence, she doesn't know, she might be more likely to stay on birth control for a really long time because, you know, she doesn't want to have kids. And really and truly, the way that our world looks at the menstrual cycle is that it, it really only matters when you want to have kids. And that myth and misconception really sets us up for years and years on birth control. And for a woman who is in that stage of either she she is wanting to have kids, but it's not immediate. So she's thinking of what, how she can plan for the future or for the woman who's really on the fence and just wants to know what she can do to preserve her fertility. When you recognize that the menstrual cycle is a sign of health, then one of the best things that you can do is to find a way to just menstruate, you know, find a way to manage your fertility without hormonal birth control. Because ultimately, I mean, we could, I don't think we need to get into all the side effects of hormonal birth control, but we've been fed a lot of stories about birth control. Women, as I remember being taught that the the menstru or the birth control pill mimics pregnancy, or that it you know regulates the cycle or something like that, and it does nothing. It does neither of those things. So, for instance, when you're taking the pill, it suppresses your natural cycle and replaces it with a fake one. So you're taking synthetic hormones that are suppressing your the communication that's supposed to be happening between your hypothalamus and your pituitary gland and your ovaries. And as a result, you just stop menstruating, you stop ovulating, and you stop having a period. Many women are getting to the point, especially as we get past our 20s, like in our late 20s, where we, we just want to be healthy. You know, we, we start to get to that point where we're, you know, we're eating differently, where some of us are buying organic food and we're looking at healthier meats to eat. And we're just making changes because we want to be healthy. I think by the time you reach the end of your 20s, it's almost like the grace period is over. <laughs> and so you start to, if you've been living, you know, like if you have a really active 20s lifestyle and you're drinking a lot or, you know, just eating garbage and like you were able to get away with that. But then as you get in your late 20s, it, it gets harder. So I think many of us get to the point where we're like, okay, we want to be healthy for healthy sake. And so, you know, you make all these changes, but we're still taking hormonal birth control. One of the things that I've been saying recently is that when you eat vegetables that have pesticides on them, those pesticides, we know that they're endocrine disruptors and we know that they're not good for us, but those pesticides weren't designed to shut down your menstrual cycle. <laughs> 
<laughs> so when you take a pill, like that's what it was designed to do. It was designed to shut down your menstrual cycle. So here we are like all concerned about, you know, pesticides and chemicals in our lotion, but you're taking a pill that was designed to shut down your menstrual cycle, meaning that it's the biggest endocrine disruptor of all. So when it comes to just thinking about fertility and thinking about overall health, it's not just when you want to have a baby that you deserve to be healthy. And we have to recognize that having a healthy menstrual cycle as a, as a biological woman with a menstrual cycle of reproductive age, this is a part of it. Fertility is a sign of health. So for any woman who's in that stage, I would say that one of the best things that you can do to preserve your fertility is to start just thinking about, could you manage your fertility without hormones. Think about your a birth control method. Just really have it in the book. I say it because I, I feel like it's kind of controversial to say it, but for any woman who's kind of itching up to their late 20s, early 30s, you got to actually reevaluate your choice of birth control, you know, as you get older. And part of, there's a couple reasons for that. One of the reasons is that hormonal birth control is associated with a temporary delay in the return of your normal fertility. And what that means is that what the research tells us is that when you come off of the pill, for example, you can expect that it's going to take you at least twice as long to get pregnant as if you weren't taking it, because that's what the research says. And so there's different studies who have, that have looked at this in different ways. Some of the studies will look at the menstrual cycle parameters, the parameters that we talked about before. So on average, it takes anywhere from 9 to 12 menstrual cycles before your menstrual cycles will go back to normal after coming off of the pill or other hormonal birth control. And what that means is that and 9 to 12 cycles, well, for some women, they don't get their first period back for a month, two months, three months. So that's more like... 12 to 18 months or more in terms of the actual time it would take you to go back to having cycles that are relatively normal. So give yourself the space and time. Don't think that because there are people who go off the pill and can get pregnant right away, but that might not be normative and expecting that could be really problematic. Well, and I mean, yes, of course, there are women who go off the pill and get pregnant right away. But when we look at what the research has to say, so, you know, the other type of studies that they do, they, the time to pregnancy studies, where they actually have women who are using non-hormonal methods like condoms or whatever, and then they have women who are using hormonal birth control of different types. So women coming off the pill, let's start with the women who aren't on hormones. So on average, for the women who aren't on hormones, it took an average of four months to get pregnant. So for a healthy couple, right, no hormones, 25% chance of pregnancy per cycle type of thing with no health issues. And then for a woman who's coming off of birth control, the pill in particular, it took an average of eight months. So right away, twice as long. And then, you know, depending on the type of birth control for women who are using the shot, that's 18 months. So it's a completely different thing. And at the end of the day, like what the research tells us, it doesn't suggest that this is like a permanent thing, but it does tell us that hormonal birth control is associated with a temporary delay. And if you think about it, if the pill is suppressing ovulation, then it would make sense that it might take a little bit of time for your body just to kind of get back in the groove. Some of the more scary research tells us that the pill suppresses our ovarian reserve parameters. So very specifically, the pill has been shown to shrink the ovaries, to reduce anti-malarian hormone levels, and to reduce antral follicle count. And so for any woman who is trying to get pregnant and has been through the fertility specialist and has got all the testing done, she'll already know that those are the things that they test to try to determine you know, what her chances are of getting pregnant through IVF. 
So the pill is associated with suppressing those factors. And it takes at least seven months, six to seven months in the research before those ovarian reserve parameters go back to normal. So, I mean, at the end of the day, like, when you have women who are in their late 20s, early 30s who are thinking about getting pregnant, that's something that they need to know. And that's why I would suggest to rethink the birth control option that you're using. Because in addition to this delay in the return of your normal fertility, the other thing that we're not taught as women is that our fertility changes. We're taught that we can get pregnant every day of our cycle. And so we go on the pill in our 20s because we're terrified of getting pregnant. <laughs> and then, but, we, but we're still just as terrified. You know, like you're 33 and you're just as terrified. You're 35 and you're just as terrified. So you're scared to come off the pill because you're scared that you're going to get pregnant right away. But no one's had the conversation with you that your fertility changes with age. And so you might be just as scared, but it's not the same when you're older. It doesn't mean you can't get pregnant, but it really does change. The conversation is different as we get into our 30s. And so our actions have to be different as well. Are there any studies that talk about the long-term effects of being on hormonal birth control? Have, has that research been done yet? Well, I mean, there's lots of research about the side effects of the pill. And do you mean the effects on, from yes, being on, on getting pregnant? Longer? Yeah. Well, I mean, I wish I could have, you know, like I, I would have loved to throw the pill under the bus. You know, I would have loved to find the research that says the pill has these like long-term effects on fertility, but I just didn't find that. What the research shows us is that the effect is temporary. I mean, the, the pill affects a lot of different aspects. As I mentioned, like the ovarian shrinkage thing is pretty terrible. The pill has been shown, you know, the pill is associated with low libido because it reduces our testosterone levels significantly, which has an impact on our physical body. So women who are on the pill have been, sh the pill has been shown to shrink the clitoris and vaginal opening, making it more likely for women to experience painful sex. And I mean, once you come off of it, there's evidence to show, you know, the body does rebound or we're very resilient. Whenever I talk about things like that, there's a lot of worried women who message me, you know, is this permanent? Am I, you know, forever destroyed because of this pill? And the evidence does not support that. One thing that I'll say as well is, especially for women who were put on birth control because of a cycle issue. So for women who were put on birth control specifically because they are, they stopped menstruating or they didn't know when their next period was coming, or they just had really sporadic, problematic menstrual cycles, because the pill is not a cure, <laughs> nor is it a treatment, you know, it, it essentially masks the problem. If we think of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, the analogy that I use for it in, in the book is like, okay, so if you were in your house or whatever and a grease fire started going off in your kitchen and your fire alarm went off, so your menstrual cycle is the fire alarm. But, you know, in real life, we're not going to put like a piece of tape over the, the fire alarm. <laughs> we're not going to like take the battery out and just keep sitting there. <laughs> Let's take the fire alarm off the wall. <laughs> yeah. But by, by using the pill to force a withdrawal bleed every 28 days because that's what it is. It's not a period. It's not a menstrual cycle. So, you know, when you take away the hormones, you take the sugar pills for a couple of days, it, it makes you bleed, but that's not a period because in order to have a true period, you have to ovulate. <laughs> so basically, we're putting the tape over the fire alarm. We're taking the batteries out of it. And so in that case, it would be so like, you know, who wouldn't want to, well, I shouldn't say that, but in my position, I would love to be sitting here and saying the pill causes post a, you know, amenorrhea and the pill, like, but that's the research doesn't support that. However, if you have a woman who had these issues before, the issues are not being addressed. So then when she comes off, it's more likely that it's going to take her longer for her period to come back because ultimately she still has to deal with the issue that was causing her periods to be, you know, irregular and problematic. That was not addressed. 
You know, I want to say one thing. It actually makes me relieved to hear you say that because I know that there are women in very different situations. And for some people, they need the pill, whether they're in a situation where they don't want to get pregnant and they don't have their partner's help in preventing pregnancy and things like that. So that's actually good news in some ways for people who need it, which is a relief. Well, just because I always say this when I talk about the pill, but I can come across as like anti-pill, like no one should ever use it, but that's not my stance. Basically, I believe that the, the most important thing is for women to be educated about it because what we need is we need the information so that we can go on to make an informed choice. I've used the pill before and most of the women that you and I both know, uh, or just in general, the women you know, the women I know, the women the listeners know, most of all of women have used it. You know, like 80% of women have used the pill. So the reason that I talk about these things is because we need to be able to have that choice. I believe that if you tell women all of these things about the pill, some women are going to use it for just as long, but at least they'll be informed. Some women will use it, but maybe they would use it for a little bit less time. Maybe they would come off of it when they hit their late 20s, early 30s, because now they're in a different state of life. Maybe they are a little bit more mature. Maybe their life has settled down a little bit such that they could try to find other ways to manage it. Maybe not. And some women would choose not to use it. Some women would say, okay, that's crazy. That's not for me. But we need to have the information so that we can make that choice. Right, right. Okay, so I want to move back over to the business side of things because for people listening, all like fertility is this thing that we can talk about and it ends up being this rabbit hole of immense amounts of information. So I highly encourage you if you want to, she has a book out called The Fifth Vital Sign and a podcast called Fertility Friday that I think has 270 something episodes. You're you're up there now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least 250. Yeah. So like each of these topics are things that we could devote entire podcast episodes to and she has. So I'll link those in the show notes. I want to come back to the business side of things. And first, it looks like this experience for you in your teens led to you becoming a fertility awareness educator, which led to your business, which you've now had for 20 years. How long have you been in business? And can you tell us about how that evolved? Well, the business, I haven't been in business for 20 years. I've been teaching. And when I first started out, the teaching was not related to business. I wasn't making money teaching this when I was in my early 20s. I was volunteering, you know, because I loved it. And so over the, the course of my life, I've had, you know, a number of different jobs, a number of different things. And really and truly, when I had my first son, I think for as, as it probably is for many women, it really just clarified some things for me. What happened for me was that I realized how much time my job required in a way that I had never realized it before. Because it's now for me, it meant that when I'm going off to work, it's time away from my kids. And so I really felt like I, if I'm spending all this time away from my kids, it has to be, it has to be something that is meaningful to me because it just no longer made sense <laughs> if it wasn't something that was meaningful to me. So this is something that I was basically doing on my own time and doing it for many, many years. But part of the reason that I, you could say it took me so long to try to really do it and to try to make a business out of it is because I couldn't think of a way that it would be able to support me. When I was, you know, 20 or whatever, you know, teaching this while going to university and all of those things, I couldn't think of a way that this would actually be a career. I was like, how would I find clients? Like, how, how would I actually make a career out of this? What I decided to do when I started the business, really, when I started my podcast specifically, I thought to myself, you know, this has been an incredible 
part of my life that has made a profound difference for me. And, you know, I know all the women who I'm around and all the educators who I work with and all, the, all of that, like, I know how important this information is. So I thought, you know what, let me see if anyone else is going to care about this. Let me put it out there in a podcast form. Because of course, when I started charting, there were not even any charting apps. <laughs> this was almost 20 years ago, let alone podcasts. That wasn't a thing. So now that the technology has changed, I thought, you know what, let me put this out there and see if anybody cares what I have to say. And so that was the start of it really. And it has slowly and organically built from there. Because what essentially I've done over the years is I've found my people, I've established my tribe, and I've, I suppose you could say I've created a community. And out of that has blossomed my business. And I found a way to do both. I found a way to share this information that I'm clearly passionate about. And I, I really do feel that every woman has the right to know all of this information. And I'm just so emotional <laughs> that I, when I get angry about this, these injustices in the world, I, I hate feeling like I can't do anything about it. And I hate feeling like it's too big for me. We talked about the medical system. That's huge. You know, I can't change the medical system, but what can I do? You know, how can I make an impact? So in my case, I was able to, yeah, like I was able to grad, like this, I didn't start here. I didn't start with the book and the podcast that, you know, like, you know, with 250 episodes, I started with no podcast. I started with one episode and no book. <laughs> so over the years, it's kind of built up to what it is today. I think that's such an important point. It's so easy to look at somebody else's business and say, wow, they have, you know, 275 episodes of their podcast and they have a published book and, you know, scroll to the bottom and realize this, this is what I did, by the way, before I got on the interview with you. I was like, when was her first episode? And I scrolled back and I'm like, 2014. Okay. It's been five years of podcasting and it's been years of starting out slowly doing some um, volunteer work, getting to know the conversation, doing the research, building the community, then starting the podcast. When did you get the idea to start the podcast? Well, obviously it was at some point in 2014. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was at a stage where I was kind of trying different things. Like I, I mean, I technically do still have a job. I've been on a leave of absence for a really long time. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> like how many years now? Like four. Um, Wait, in, in what field? Can I ask? Yeah, I, I work for the government or I worked for the government. Yeah, I had a government job. But yeah, so. Is that um, what you did straight out of college? Let me Or think. university? So out of university, I had, I mean, I've had a number of different jobs. Out of university, I actually spent some time working for two different sexual assault centers and I used to do public education work. So I would actually go out into classrooms and educate students about the myths about sexualized violence so that they understood, yeah, you know, criminal code, what is sexual assault, what is child abuse, blah, 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 the whole thing. So, you know, basically that type of work also appealed to me because that's another whole issue of injustice and, you know, what we're not taught about anything. I, I will, I'll spare you from that rabbit hole. But so I worked in that field for a while. And really what happened was, you know, I was working in different jobs. I met my husband. You know how the story always goes. As a woman, I always wish it was, it was something different, but it's not. I met my husband and I ended up moving across the country. And in order to move across the country, I needed to find a job. And so that's why I ended up working with the government because I needed, I needed a job in order to move across the country and start my life with my husband. <laughs> 
funny. And so then if I'm if I'm timing this correctly, you started your podcast uh, four and a half years ago or so, and you have kids that are three and six. So your podcast came after your first kid. Yeah. So I'm trying to think because it's I'm not the best at recall. My husband laughs at me because of my memory. But basically, I was in this stage of and like all through this time, like I was charting before I so I moved across the country before I moved across the country. I was still heavily involved in charting. I had taken a class with a group of ladies with Justice College and we were actively teaching. And so this was always a part of my life. And when I moved across the country, it was kind of like the first time that I wasn't actively part of a group who was charting, teaching charting and all of those things. So there was a part of me that wanted to find a way to reconnect with that because it's obviously a really important part of my life. So when, after I had my first son, I feel like at one point I started a blog and it was a completely unrelated blog. I just started a blog, you know, it was like a free WordPress blog. And I just started randomly talking about things. And then one day it occurred to me (laughs) that I have a whole lot to say about fertility awareness charting. And what really happened was that I had been already charting for 10 years. This whole conversation that we just had wasn't news to me. There's a lot of listeners whom all of the things we just talked about is like brand new to them. But for but for me, I had been in this for so long that it was not news to me. But what was news to me was around that time when I was like 28, 29, 30, and everyone starts having kids and like my Facebook feed was full of babies, I started to realize that a lot of my, like I had several close friends and, you know, other, you know, just the periphery, you know, I'm working, I'm I have lots of friends, colleagues through work, and all of a sudden it's really hitting me that a lot of people are having a hard time getting pregnant and, you know, some friends close to me were having difficulties. And it really occurred to me, I mean, your average woman, even though I've known this stuff for so long, your average woman has no idea about her menstrual cycle, how to time sex accurately, all of the information that we've talked about today. Your average woman has no idea because we're not taught this. It's a systematic lack of education that we face. So this all kind of culminated around that time. I had just had a baby. I was, you know, breastfeeding and, you know, breastfeeding is like night and day all the time. So what did I do? I was listening to podcasts, right? And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I could start a podcast. So I started a blog first and I was blogging. I started the Fertility Friday kind of blog thing first because I was like, oh, let me do this blog. And then I realized, I was like, oh, I could start a podcast. And I'll tell you a cute story of how I came up with the title because I didn't know what I was going to call it. But I had this idea for the podcast and I'm literally trying to figure out the name. And my husband and I went for a walk downtown. I live in Toronto and there's a a store or I think it might be a store. I don't even know, but it's called Girl Friday. And we walked past it. I was like, that's it. (laughs) Fertility Friday. (laughs) That's amazing. I love it when names come like that. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, so that was basically the start of it. And I recorded eight episodes. And then I just, at the time I started my podcast, everyone was listening to Entrepreneur on Fire. (laughs) And he was doing seven days a week. And there was all of these, it was so funny, actually, looking back, but everyone was trying to do what he was doing. So around the time I started my podcast, there was like all these people starting like seven-day-week podcast, five-day-week podcast. And I remember thinking, like, I just had a baby. Like, this is not happening. <laughs> I thought to myself, what what frequency do I think I could do? And I was literally like, because I never had an end date. My whole thing was like, what could I still be doing, you know, years from now? And I decided that what, weekly, I was like, I think I can do weekly. And so I started with eight episodes and that was it. Well, we could have this conversation for another couple of hours, but I'm going to stop us here. For people listening, 
The book is called The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. And I will put a link in the show notes. And her website is fertilityfriday.com. And the podcast is also Fertility Friday. If you are listening and you have follow-up questions, send them to me. You know my email address. It's hello at startuppregnant.com. Let me know. Because if we get a lot of interesting questions, which I I think we will, (laughs) I think people are going to be like, wait a second. (laughs) Send me your questions and I will reach out to Lisa if we get enough questions and maybe we'll have her back for a bonus episode. Lisa, where can people find you on the internet and follow your work? Are there social places that you like to hang out or do you avoid them altogether? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you so much, Sarah. This was fantastic. You asked such good questions. This was a lot of fun. I have been hanging out on Instagram more these days. So at Fertility Friday, surprise, surprise. The podcast every Friday, surprise, surprise, I drop an episode. (laughs) (laughs) This is all very like, (laughs) this like no spoiler alert or whatever. Like this is very anticlimactic right now. But yeah, so Fertility Friday, that's of, of course where you'll find me. You can just, if you, whatever your favorite podcast player is, if you search that, you'll find me. And then of course the book is available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. I've been working on the audio. You know, I discovered that an audiobook is not the same as a podcast. Mm-hmm. It's hard. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, it's actually a whole different beast. So I was very humbled by that and every experience uh, and process along the writing of this book. But that'll be out soon. And if the listeners are wanting to get a sneak peek of the book, you can grab the first chapter for free, the fifthvitalsignbook.com. And so I think those are the main places. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us as a guest today. It's been so great. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.